Welcome to Bold Becoming Identity Retooled. This podcast is where we explore the landscape of the immensity of landmines that exist for people who've lost their sense of identity, who've been shaken to the core, and are relearning who they are now that a part of them is lost. It's stories of how people manage this struggle, regain their footing, and the gifts they've discovered along the way. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, Thomas. Hi, how are you, Julie? Good, thanks. So um, happy to have you here to learn more about how to be playful in life. Yes. Thomas is a playful coach. Yeah. Playtime coach. coach. Yeah. Playfulness. <laughs> and he wasn't always so playful. No. And, <laughs> <laughs> and so this, um, this interview, of course, as, as we discussed, is, is about identity loss unexpected sort of the rugs pulled out from under some people it happens like immediate it's an immediate event some people it, it happens like invisibly like going over the line in, invisibly from drug recreation to addiction mm-hmm. and and I think you have one of those stories right yeah yeah I mean my you know it's interesting you, you said the the rug pulled under me so to speak and at some times it felt like that. And other times I knew the rug was gonna be pulled. I still didn't know what to do, <laughs> you know? And, and I think yeah. for me, that was one of the harder uh, things to deal with, you know? The guilt of it? Well, well I'll, I'll, share, I'll share a little bit of it. Yeah. You know, we can kind of go into bits and pieces of my story. You but... tell whatever you want, you start wherever you want with your story. And I'll yeah. just keep sort of veering it back to this identity loss and overcoming theme that, yeah, that I like absolutely. to explore with people. And I and I loved and I and I love this because I feel like so many people struggle with identity. And there's not a lot of time spent in really understanding who we are because we're I think I personally believe that we're programmed to focus on what we do and have that be the the quintessential value of of who we are. And that's just not true. But this is my story. You know, I I was I was born I'm first generation American born. Uh, My family is originally from Jamaica and we, we, you know, traveled to Boston uh, for a better life. And I'm the youngest in my family. And so I was deemed basically the golden child, you know, <laughs> to, to, I have all the opportunities. And so there's no yeah. reason. So for the expectation be, is just through the roof, it's through the roof, you know, and I, I felt this even at a young age and, you know, my parents, you know, they very intelligent, uh, very resourceful, uh, just amazing. And also very focused and, and they were very diligent, and I would even say vigilant in how they really wanted me to live, which was, you know, go to school, get an education, get a job, I get think, money. Is there a name for that now? <laughs> is that called helicopter parenting? Um, well, I don't think they were so much helicopter parenting in, in terms of just kind of, they, were, they weren't on top of me. They were just very like, we're just going to program this in you, and this is how you're going to live, you know, maybe... Right. I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure there's a term for it. I just don't know. Well, what that I know that I know that because I've I know lots of immigrants, and that is a, a central theme of mm-hmm. the majority of the immigrants is that this is the country of opportunity, and you damn well better take take advantage of it. Exactly. 
Exactly. Like, we we worked our butts off to make this for you to have. Don't squander it. Yes, you know, and and that that what you said is was the beginnings of what I now now this is just a reflection, right? Yeah. I wasn't aware of this as a kid, but this was the beginnings of a a, a growing fear that I started to build around fear of disappointing oh, wow. and fear of failure and, and all those things. And so I was very, you know, driven to succeed. And through that, uh, I had to deal with a lot of bullying. I had to deal with a lot of just- Oh, cause uh, you're too you know, good. Yeah, you know, and, I, and, I, and then I would try to be cool and not focus so much on academics, but I still wasn't cool enough. And then, uh, you know, the geeks <laughs> wouldn't have me because I wasn't smart enough anymore. Like I didn't have the grades to make the cut. So then I was just alone. And wow. I would try to come home and talk about it with my, with my and mom. And this is in like middle school? I'm trying yeah, to like it was like early, late, late elementary school to middle school. You know, it was around that time. And, and I would try to come home and talk to my mom about it, my dad. And once again, they were just like, don't, like, don't worry about it. Just focus on your education. But like, how could you not worry about it as a this, kid? You know? Yeah, that's your, your entire <laughs> you know? is, is socialization at exactly. that point. Yeah. And so it, it just continued to be a struggle that I had to take on on my own um, for mm. quite a bit. And uh, it had its ups and downs. Um, you know, I had friends uh, and not, you know, I had people who didn't like me or wanted to, to bully me continuously. You know, mm. then when I got into to women and girls, like that created a whole nother plethora of, <laughs> of issues and, and just kind of figuring out who I am. And so I, um, I was... So I thought I had found the one and I'm going to go, I'm, I'm going to see if I can go as quickly as possible because the story can get long, but you know, I, I thought I'd found the one. I was about a week away from proposing to her. And then I find out, well, she tells me that she had cheated on me. Now I'm a sophomore in college. So very young, you know, but it still rocked me. And, yeah. you know, after crying in the shower for about a half hour, I came out and I said to myself, like, I never want something like that to happen again. And but you, had, you hadn't proposed quite yet. No, no. You were getting, you're almost. Yeah, almost there. And then this comes up. Yeah. So I come out and I, and, I, and I say to myself, I'm not going to have this happen to me, you know? And this is where my journey into personal development begins, you know, as a 19 year old. And uh, the first book I picked up was, you know, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Good one and to pick up. It was a great one. You know? <laughs> it, it really, it, Takeaway number one, go buy that book. Yeah, like go grab that book and, and read it often because you will always pick up something different. Because we're always in a read. different stage of development yeah. when we. Mm -hmm. Yeah, oftentimes I actually find that it, it's not the quantity of what you read. It's usually the quality. And if you have quality pieces of content, you can read those things or go through these programs multiple times because who you are when you watch it the second time or, or listen or read it at the second, you know, the next time is different. So you, yeah. you, you pick you're up on starting, you're, you're, you're starting from a different foothold. That's, yeah. that's like my, my certified high performance coaching. They're, they're 12 core sessions. Mm -hmm. And for years there was only those 12. And then Brendan Burchard, who developed yeah. the curriculum, he added on more groups of 12, but you could recycle those 12 over and over with the same person because after those 12 sessions, especially if they do the work, yeah, then they are a different person at the end of the 12 
-hmm. And so then starting again, then you just keep refining and refining and refining, right? On the yeah. same material. Because Absolutely. I mean, really how much there there isn't all that many different angles to work on your life. There, yeah. it, there's it, it's sort of um finite, but you keep working at those same angles. Yeah. And you um anyway. Yeah, and you, you optimize, you know. And, That's and, the word. Yeah. And and that's, I mean, that's where I'm at today, but before that, you know, and then. So wait, let's go into to this, um, get back to your story. Yeah. So I'll, I'll fast forward a little bit. Right. So, um, you know, my life incrementally got better. Um, I had graduated from college and I, and I originally wanted to, uh, be a video game producer. And so, you know, I went to school for that mm -hmm. 2008 hit job market and the economy completely tanked. Um, this was during a time where the video games and the industry shifted where, instead of doing multiple small budget games, they would focus on big, single big budget games. And the way video game uh, development processes work is that they're hiring freezes once a game is complete, right? Mm -hmm. Because at that point it's going from completion to now retail, right? Yeah. And so there's no need for production or quality assurance or any of that kind of stuff. And so I tried to you know, apply for jobs that just weren't available and mm -hmm. ended up working in hospitality. I became a hotel manager. Uh, back in Boston, and but knew that you know there was something more that I wanted, and so I was really inspired by um, early days of Gary Vaynerchuk, um, you know, talking about really trying to uh, drive your life based on what you're passionate about, and the idea of hustling to really make something out of that. And I realized that I was really make, make something where people say there's nothing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, and. I, I realized I was really passionate about personal development because, you know, after that, after I had read Seven Habits, I really became a sponge and read tons of different books. And the ones that really allowed me to learn more about myself were, were ones about uh, communication, social skills, um, relationships. The soft skills. Yeah, networking, uh, style and fashion, you know, things like that. And so I, focused my energy on creating a blog on about how I was using these skill sets to create a life for myself being back in Boston and reinventing myself and it one thing led to another and then eventually I came upon the idea of actually helping other people do the same and I called it the professional wingman and that company was created specifically to help people who are single learn how to create romantic connections in person, in real social environments. And I would just give them real-time feedback and what was holding them back or preventing them from making those connections happen. So um, a lot of people could have, had compared me to uh, the movie Hitch that had come out you know, years prior, prior to uh, me starting this company, but the, the brand and the idea and the story around being the, the wingman was really, really popular. And so it was only within a matter of months where I went from servicing three clients in Boston uh, and really enjoying the process to finding myself in the Wall Street Journal and literally overnight uh, starting to service clients internationally. Okay, uh, you know? and your parents, I hope they saw this. Well, my, it, it, the funny thing, I was still living with my parents at the time. Oh my and God, when, okay. <laughs> and when the Wall Street Journal article hit, my mom was knocking on the door waking me up because I was sleeping in. And she said, my neighbor read about you in the Wall Street Journal. Oh <laughs> and, so, my God. and I looked and it was, it, it was just madness, you know, and then it just became a snowball. Uh, everyone wanted to interview me. They wanted my story. Clients wanted to work with me. Clients started to fly me out to their city to work with them on helping to 
become more comfortable and sociable in their city. And so I went from being this kid who had only lived, you know, been in two cities, Boston and Philadelphia for college to now traveling around the country in cities that I didn't know, but uh, experiencing a, just a very different type of life. And it was amazing. I leveraged this life to create more opportunities for myself. I made a lot of money. Um, I got a lot of popularity. I even met my wife, my, you know, my girlfriend who became my wife. Um, and you know, it, it looked from appearance's sake, life was amazing. Like I was the wingman. And this is where the identity part comes into play. You know, I really okay. took it on. And when I think about who I was before and who I was then at that time. You were, was, wait, you were confused before and yeah. you were scared to, that you might not be able to fulfill your parents' dream for you. Yeah. And then here you are on the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm fulfilling their, their, their dreams. Right, right? Their, their dreams. Their, yeah, and it reached a, a peak where I was on the Steve Harvey show. Oh my God. It was an amazing segment, I had a great Ego. time. He, he himself, you know, had his doubts because, you know, I was young and I, he was like, what does a young guy like you know about dating and relationships and, and connecting with people? And I blew him away on the segment. He even Good for you. Was, he was impressed, age, you know? Age is not, it's, it's perspective. It's not age. Yeah. It's not who you are. It's how you see yeah. things. You know, I, I know a lot of people who are young and have just profound wisdom and, and you right. don't know necessarily where it comes from per se, but you, you appreciate it nonetheless. There, I know? think they're called old souls. Yes. And I've always been described as an old soul, you know, and, and I've, I've embraced it. You know, I am an old man, <laughs> you know, and I, and I love it. I love it. Um, Cause it, it just allows me to really gain an amazing worldly sense of, of view, you know, um, and it makes it easy to connect with so many different people like, like you, you know? And so I remember celebrating so we went back to, you know, I got to the show feeling great about myself. I went to celebrate. They flew me into Chicago. So I was on a rooftop and celebrating with people. Some people I knew, some people I didn't know. And I said, wow, like I did it. Like I'm known as one of the best in the world at what I do. People know me, you know, it got to a point where I was living in, I was, I, I, I was living in New York. You were being sought my, after. Yeah. Right. For the, and, for the good stuff. Yeah, like I was, I was the guy. Like I, I, I was like I was the wingman, and I, and I kept saying that, like I am the wingman. And I remember kind of feeling that, and then something strange happened. Like there was a, a, a an emptiness that I that I yeah. felt yeah. from that moment, and it really scared me because I didn't know what that was, and it stayed. I thought it was gonna go away, but it stayed. And I remember going back to like the, the crowd, you know, the kind of the crowd and the, the seating. And I just like started drinking and thinking, okay, like I'll just keep drinking, enjoy myself, this will pass. And I wake up the next day in the hotel room, I still feel this emptiness. Mm -hmm. And in reflection, what it was, was there was a lack of fulfillment. I was fulfilling someone else's dream. You know, I was feeling fulfilling someone else's desires and wishes. You know, I was living the life that I thought I wanted, but it was a life that someone else wanted. It had been fed into you. Yeah, you know, and listen, with good intention. Right. right? So, you know, it was, and, it's always, and I do believe that it typically is with good intention, but it wasn't mine. Right, right. And it really put me in a funk and it, and it started this really Wait, slow... so just, just the next yeah. morning, you already realized that 
that, okay, this isn't fulfillment and you made the connection that it was because it was somebody else's fulfillment? No, I didn't know. Oh, okay. That was, that was the thing. Like, I didn't know truly what it was. I didn't know why you're just, I was You just recognize unfulfillment. Yeah. At, at this climax. Yeah, point. I just didn't know. And I didn't know how to handle the emotions that came with it. I didn't know how but to wait, talk what about were it. The, what were those emotions? A sense of fear um, of what, what's next. How did you experience that fear in oh, that hotel was, room? What really? Well, I was, I was, I was sweating, <laughs> first of all. Uh, you know, I was sweating. Uh, I was short of breath. You know, not so much a panic, but just I, I was restless. I didn't know what was next. You know, I, I didn't plan for what was next after wanting to be the best in the world and, and have all these things that I thought I wanted. I didn't know how to really pinpoint the emotions I, were, I was feeling, you know, per se. Like, I, I knew I was feeling fear. I was feeling restlessness. But I also didn't realize that I was feeling sad and I was feeling lonely. I didn't realize that this was what was going on. Um, mm. You know, I was, I was trying to bury who I was uh, un, you know, under this persona that I thought would make me more lovable. That it, I wasn't aware that this was going on. And I did also, more importantly, didn't know who to talk to or how to talk to about it because I was always raised to figure things out on my own. Um, and, that, and, you know, in my family, for better or for worse, just didn't, we didn't talk about feelings much, you know? And so I just didn't have those skill sets to learn how to express myself. Um, and that was really tough. So I kept all this internally and I went back mm -hmm. home thinking like every, you know, made things look like everything was okay, but I was not okay. And, uh, I just kept drinking, uh, I kept partying. I kept, uh, just wanting to escape and not feel these feelings that I didn't know were there. You know, I knew they were there, but I just didn't know how to identify them. And that was when I started to have my first struggle with, who I really was, you know, like I had in a, in a conscious struggle, like my growing up, you, you could kind of try to figure out who you are. Growing up is a natural part of growing up. Yeah. Right. And then I became the wingman and I thought that was who I was, you know, but right. we, we I, grow I, up to become <laughs> this. Who do you want to be when you grow up? Mm -hmm. And, and I thought that was there. It. And then, yeah. And, and now I'm in this place of like, I don't really want to be the wingman. This is not really who I am, but this is what I do. How do, how do, I, how do I deal with this? And I, and I couldn't, you know? And so that went on for- And wait, uh, so yeah. what about it wasn't a fit other than it was somebody else's idea? What, what were the um, details about the non-fitting parts? Yeah. Um, I constantly had to look a certain way, you know, and so when I created the identity of the wingman, it came with its own outfit, <laughs> you know, so I was known as the guy who would always be wearing a blazer, nice leather shoes, a pocket square, usually a bow tie. I mean, I was always the best dressed person in the room, and that became a part of my identity. You know, I was the kind of guy that you, you could even see wearing a tuxedo at a dive bar, you know, it was, sometimes it would get that aggressively. Did you have your dreadlocks then? I didn't have my dreadlocks then, but I did have an afro, you know, and so I, and so I still always like stood out, you know, and, and I'm, I'm six feet tall. And so I'm tall enough 
that with that combined with how I looked, I just stood out. And it wasn't, I wasn't doing it to get attention. I was doing it because I thought that's a part of the persona, right? It's part of my identity. That's just who I was, you know? Mm -hmm. And I enjoyed it, but over time it became more of like, I need to do this because this is who I want to be, you know? So even on days where I would rather wear sweatpants and a t-shirt, <laughs> I didn't, I felt like I couldn't because mm -hmm. then I would be uh, not aligned with my brand, but little did I realize that I wasn't, I was convincing myself I wasn't in a lot, that wasn't in alignment with my identity. Yeah. Um, I, I had a little bit yeah. of that because I lost my job as a social worker and then I ended up sewing high-end clothes mm. and so therefore I needed to look the part right because mm, my teacher yeah. always said you're your own model yeah and but but I that wasn't that wasn't who I was mm -hmm. a a couture level you know woman <laughs> yeah yeah. And I think sometimes like if it fits, it fits, you know, but if it doesn't to force it, then, you know, it, it messes with you as it messed with my, my psyche, you know, and, and one big thing that was profound when we talk about identity was, was actually video games. You know, I, as I told you before, like I wanted to be a video game producer. So I was very passionate about video games for a long time. And then I started to once again, absorb other people's stories about their perspective on video games and entrepreneurship, you know, so they would sell that they tell me things like, you don't have time to play video games. Like you're, you're an entrepreneur, you're building your business or video games are immature or video games are not cool, right? They're, they're not wingman, you know? That's not, what, that's not what a wingman does, you know? And so I, I adopted these programs as, as, as my own and shut out a big part of what made me really happy for, for, oh, for, for a goodness. long time, you know? And, and just didn't realize it, you know? And so then what was left how, was- how, yeah. do you, how do you not realize it? That you're missing something that you love because i thought that i was making a better choice right mm -hmm. i was i was i was i was sacrificing this is the program i was sacrificing what i thought was instant gratification from playing video games for the future of a successful business you know okay. and you couldn't break yeah. from the parts that you were playing I couldn't yeah i couldn't you know if i instead of staying in and allowing myself a night of playing video games, I figured I needed to be out there and connecting with people. I need to be out there socializing because the wingman is very social. He goes out and he's a man, of, he's a man about town, you know, and, and people want to go where he's going. Yeah, I mean, it just, these programs just started to really come in and take control over, uh, over me, you know, and I didn't have the tools or resources or places to go to figure this stuff out you know and i i was so ill-equipped you know i didn't i didn't know what, what i was doing what did you need in retrospect well I, I needed to learn how to identify my emotions and i needed a safe place to express them okay you know uh, after that you know some feedback maybe some reflection and some guidance could have <laughs> would also be great you know but I didn't even have a safe place to go to and talk about these things. You didn't have a, a confidant. No. And whenever that happened, it was usually over drinking. So I wouldn't even remember what I talked about anyway, because oh. that was what would let me be comfortable talking about. Oh, to let down your guard. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, yep. You know? Drugs are good for that. Exactly. For, alcohol is a drug. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it just started to really fuel my, my abuse of, of alcohol. And then eventually I wanted to keep drinking and then, 
I feel like I was peaking. So then drugs came into the fold and the drugs were only there to keep me, to allow me to keep drinking, you know? And so it just became this. And then with that obviously comes different social crowds, you know? And so Mm -hmm. instead of being with like the happy hour crowds, I was hanging out with like the after hours crowds, you know? And, And it just got darker and darker. I eventually, you know, got married. We moved from New York to LA thinking that, you know, it could be kind of a fresh start for us. And what it really did Wait, was, a, <laughs> yeah. A fresh start from what? That you would stop being with those friends because you, you both yeah, recognize I, this as a problem? I thought that, uh, well, she didn't, I don't know if she, she didn't bring it up to me. I mean, we now know in retrospect that she saw that something was happening with me and she didn't know necessarily what. But in my mind, I thought, you know, if I move to LA, maybe the slower pace of, you know, in comparison to the grind and the hustle that New York kind of brings would allow me the space to kind of be more chill, not to feel like I need to go after it so much. Mm-hmm. So we moved out, out uh, to the West Coast. And actually what it did was it accelerated things because I, 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 was not now I didn't have friends right I was I was alone and I was still in the struggle of like you know who I wanted to be I started to not really care about the business as much you know I, I still did my best to show up for my clients you know my clients didn't suffer for the most part but uh after the sessions I was just a mess you know it was almost like the dopamine of the session is what got me through. And then mm-hmm. once the session was done, I crashed, you know? And so I was really depressed, you know? And internally this was still going on, but for hours experience appearances, like I was living the dream, <laughs> you know? And, and to maintain those two, I mean, I was living separate lives, basically, mm-hmm. you know? Social media, I was the man, right? And, and I, when I was working with my clients, I was the best. And at home, I was, Virtually, I felt like nothing. I felt like I just didn't have anything. And then. And what did that feel like when you feel like you have nothing? Well, the loneliness is, was really key because I didn't feel connected to anything. I didn't feel connected to life. I didn't feel connected to my wife. I didn't feel connected to any sense of purpose or direction. I had no spirituality in my life at the time. You were just so, going through the motions. I was, yes, I was an autopilot, you know, autopilot. doing what I thought I needed to do because I had obligations that I created for myself and I just wasn't enjoying any of them. But I, being, trying to be a responsible person, I would just say, okay, I'm just going to do this because I have to. And then I'd be resentful about it. And then I would say, okay, well, I'm going to take back some control over my life. And I would do that in the form of going out to the bar and meeting up with people and then not coming home until late hours, you know? And it just, it was, it was a very nasty cycle and it still didn't get worse. That wasn't as bad, worse as it got. When it got worse was when uh, my wife had come into the room, my bedroom and told me that she was pregnant. This is where one of my biggest identity crises uh, happen because I always reflect upon this day as the best worst day of my life. Mm, you know, yeah. it, was the, it was the best day because I've always known that I, I, I was going to be a great dad and I always wanted to be a dad ever since I was a, a teenager. And so that day was finally here, you know, I was, 
excited and, and in shock in some ways because it's here. And then it was the worst day because that is when it became very clear that the identity of wingman was done. It was over. And I lost my shit. <laughs> um, hopefully that that's okay to use that language, but I really just lost we're all, it. We're all adults. <laughs> you know, and, and, and once again, in reflection, you know, what I was doing was I was actively mourning the death of my identity. So I was just really depressed. Um, I would go out and continue to drink and drug and, and it just got worse. The people I would be surrounded myself with got worse. Yeah. How I was taking care of my body got worse. How I was present for my wife during pregnancy got worse. Yeah. Everything just got worse. Um, even through like, you know, the birth, like the first year of my daughter being born, like it just got worse. Um, so before you go yeah. into that, how did becoming a father instantly end being the wingman? Because I had it in my mind that the wingman had to have this appearance of like, of coolness, you know, someone that like had the ability to be out with the people. <laughs> and how can you be out with the now people you're if home. you're a dad, yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, and it, yeah, right? Like, so so the, the, the pattern here is that I was creating, I was also, you know, um, I was also creating my own stories in this, right? And, and allowing them to dictate how I felt and then the behaviors, you know? So the feelings that, so the, the, pro, you know, the, the story was, you know, fathers aren't wingmen, you know, they're, they're not cool. You know, for, I can't be as cool anymore because I'm going to be a dad. Because your dad was on the straight and narrow. <laughs> my dad was not, no. <laughs> you know? Um, my dad was, my dad, you know, he worked you know and he focused on work and bringing home money you know um and just the way that he had worked didn't allow him to be always present um and he definitely wasn't someone that you know you know showcased emotions mm -hmm. um and so i learned a lot about that and you know he yeah i mean I, when i look back at like both my parents you know they they they, they are incredible and I didn't realize that what with the good that they have instilled in me, there are also some things that I now have had to heal <laughs> and work through and um, didn't give myself permission to be upset about, you know, um, but that's not their fault. You know, they, they did the best they could, you right. know, so I can, I can forgive them and then choose to take on and heal my, my trauma. So that way I don't have to pass it on to my daughter. Yeah. Reparent yourself. Being a parent is a perfect time to reparent yourself. Exactly. As, as you're parenting your kid the way you wanted to be parented, then you're giving that gift to yourself. Mm -hmm. 100%, you know, and so the trauma and the healing that I get to do is the trauma and healing that my daughter doesn't get to do, you know, and, and then if, you know, she ends up having kids, they may not even know that, you that trauma. You've broken the chain. Existed. Yeah. And I, and I really believe that that's where, you know, where things are today. But as we get closer to that, um, you know, it got to the point where it was really bad. My wife came out and said, listen, you know, I love you. And this is not the marriage that I want to be in. You know, I, I want to be in, in, a, in a connected, healthy marriage, you know, and so something needs to change. And I remember her, I'm paraphrasing, but I remember her kind of wording it in that way. She wasn't pointing the finger at me. 
you know, bless her. She was saying what she needed. Yeah, what she needed. And uh-huh. you know, obviously in, in my state, I took that on as, you know, there's something wrong with me. And it was the first time where I actually took a hard look at myself and I said, there's nothing else I can really do to help to get myself out of this situation that I'm in. I don't have the tools. Uh, this is the thinking and the behavior that got me in this. And I don't know any other thinking or behavior that can get me out. What got and you so, this far can't get you to the next level. Yeah. And so it was the first time where I just acknowledged I need help, you know, and this was something that I never allowed myself to ask for, for most of my life, because that that was just what my conditions were. And that was the beginning of a slow and then accelerated shift towards living a better life. And I, once again, back going back to when I was, uh, when I came across seven habits, right. And how I became a sponge and started soaking in all this information. I did the same thing. I had a personal therapist. I got a couples therapist. I had an addiction doctor. I hired a coach. I did leadership weekends. I did spiritual retreats. I did recovery programs, brotherhood groups. Like I really immersed myself and allowed myself to um, receive help, right? Ask and receive help. And my life incrementally got better. And I would say like every 90 days or so, something would happen. I would be triggered or I would trigger myself and then I would behave in such a way. And usually it was with like going out and drinking and becoming a mess, you know? And eventually my wife had to set boundaries that like, hey, like if you come home like late again, like you will not be allowed back in the house. And I've had to go through a couple of times where like I just wasn't allowed back in the house. But, but something different happened. Um, I was going... I was still doing wingman. I was still trying to hold on to to wingman at this point. This is January 12th, 2019. So I'm seeing a client. I don't want to see this client. Nothing against him. I just don't want to do this anymore, but I don't know how else to make a living. You didn't have an exit plan. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I've been doing this for, you know, 11 years at this point, straight, pretty much out of college. This is all I know. And I just finished playing Uno with my wife. We had a great night. And I remember going, opening the door to leave. And <laughs> this is, I believe my, you know, my higher power blew the door shut out of my hands and shut it. And I said, that something feels weird. Like something, I feel like somebody's telling me I should not go out tonight. And my wife said, just, you're working. Just go do what you have to do and come back. It's just a couple hours. I said, all right. And I go to the bar, which is where I was meeting my client. And as soon as I enter the bar, I black out. I didn't have a drink prior to this, but it was the first time I ever walked into a place and, and, and blacked out like that. And I woke up, well, when I, when I woke up, I came to, when I came to actual consciousness, I was standing outside of my apartment and it was like six or 7 a.m. So I know I effed up and I try to get into the house. She, of course, bless her again. She held the boundary and said, you can't come in here. So then what do I do? Well, it's Sunday. So I go make my way to the bar <laughs> and proceed to drink myself into oblivion. And where you're, where you're always welcome. Where I'm always welcome, where everyone loves me. But Nobody's going to lock you out of there. Yeah, right. But this time it's just messy. You know, I'm crying, hugging. I'm like, I'm totally victimizing myself, you know? 
Meanwhile, I'm the one that caused the damage. I'm the one that caused the harm, but I'm totally victimizing myself. So I call one of my, one of my best friends and he kind of takes me and, you know, he basically takes care of me, watches over me. And then towards the end of the night, I try to go back into my house. My wife screaming, it's like, get out, like you can't be here. And now at this point, I've actually blacked out because I had too much alcohol. And I believe that between the time that I blacked out to when I actually woke up the next morning, my higher power came in and said, like, you're done. Like, you've had enough. And that whatever that obsession was for me to want to escape my feelings and use alcohol as a tool to do that did not exist on January 14th evaporated it was just gone and it was really scary for me because I, I compare it to the the scene in the matrix when neo gets unplugged and he's laying on the bed and they're working on his body and he's like why do my eyes hurt and morpheus says you never used them before i remember waking up that day and i end up waking up in a hotel room um close to where my house was like i i mean thank god because anything could have happened to me and i remember walking out, looking around in a place that I had been there already for three years and not recognizing it. It looks like a completely different place. And it really scared me because this was a place where I couldn't drink <laughs> and I didn't know what to do, you know? And so, um, you know, I ended up going into, you know, recovery, you know, taking on a recovery program. And what that ended up doing was it allowed me to tap into my spirituality made me realize that I do have a power, I do have a, a power that's higher and that's better, you know, greater than my own will, and that I don't need to be so in control. It's mm -hmm. that I, I'm safe, that I'm protected, that the universe has me here for a particular purpose. I may not have known what that purpose was at that moment, but I started to understand that I can let myself go a little bit and not um, feel like I need to run from my stuff. And all the things that I learned through the support that I received from my therapist, my psychiatrist, my doctors, my coaches, like everything, it clicked in a different way. It was like, it's kind of like, you know, if you have a, a cup, this is a- They, they a, weren't a, really saying anything different. It just came in differently. It just came in differently. It registered. Yeah. Like, you know, imagine holding a, a hot cup of coffee, right? And it's covered. Uh -huh. And the coffee represents all the stuff that you've learned, you know, all your experience and, and the knowledge that you have. But the cover represents the thing that, at least for me, it was, it was the drinking. It was the escapism, right? Alcohol was just a symptom of the real, the root, which was I couldn't handle my emotions and I couldn't handle life, you know? And so I would always escape. And so alcohol for me was part of that process, right? I would go, I would escape what was accessible to me. It was alcohol. For other people, it's different. It could be anything, you know? And so alcohol represent, the escapism was the cap that kept all the, the steam and the heat inside that cup. And then once the desire to escape was removed and that cap came off, everything just came out all the steam, all the heat just got released. And so much made sense to me, you know, and life continued to get better. 
I stopped having those 90 day fallbacks. I stopped having those little setbacks that would, you know, make the 98% of effort that I would uh, have be reduced to ashes, you know, just in, in one night. And so things started to get better, started to build a better connection with my wife, started to show up better in, in, my, in my family, started to, to really be more um, accepting of the fact that Wingman was done. January 2nd, 12th, 2019, by the way, was when I, it was my last night at Wingman. I retired that day. have not done any of that since because I knew it was done. I had, and I had to accept that. So I allowed myself to accept that. And how, I, did, how did you allow yourself to accept that? Because that's one of the reasons why people stay stuck is that they don't accept that that, that chapter is over. Well, Wingman was part of my escape hatch. Oh. If I didn't want to deal with life, I could always rely on the identity of the wingman to keep me safe, right? And it became a great excuse for me then to go out and leverage the tool of alcohol and drugs. And so once I made that connection and I realized that the obsession to drink was gone, then for me to give up wingman actually was pretty easy. And if, it, and if I didn't have that obsession to, of escapism to be gone, I, I would probably still struggle with that, right? But because that connection was there and I didn't have any desire to escape my feelings and escape life anymore, it, it became easy to let that go, you know? Yeah. Um, and I thank spirituality for that because I could not have come up with that on my own. That was not a message that I came up with. <laughs> uh, this, this is called serendipity. Yeah, 100%. It, so, it, it yeah. shows up and it does its thing. Yeah. So my life, incrementally continued to get better. And as it continued to get better, I started to notice something, something that was just, it still just felt strange to me. And I assessed what my life was looking like as I was making my way through being a sober spiritual being, trying to uh, you know, take on my responsibilities and rebuild myself from the ground up, getting to learn more of who I am. The one thing, that I noticed was I wasn't enjoying life. <laughs> mm, you were go, you were you were you're going through all the the steps that that the therapist and everybody laid out. Yeah. And it wasn't again un, it was unfulfilling. Yeah, I wasn't having fun. I was doing it out of obligation, right? Which I have now learned that when I'm doing things for something else outside of me, whether it's a person, a place or a thing, I'm not going to experience fulfillment that way. That's just me, but I'm not going to experience fulfillment that way. And that's, that's called intrinsic extrinsic motivation. motivation. Yeah, extrinsic motivation, right? And so, and it's finite because if I were to feel resistance, I'm more likely to give up because it doesn't come from an intrinsic source, right? right. It doesn't come from an internal uh, source. And so I knew that as good as my life was getting, for, for where it was at the time, it was going to be a matter of time before old behaviors would creep back in because I'm doing this out of obligation. I'm not doing this because I'm having fun and I want to do it, right? Um, I was still missing that gratitude. Audience takeaway right here. <laughs> yes. Doing it for somebody else isn't the right way. It's not, it's not, you know? And I decided that I was going to commit myself for 90 days to find out 
what having fun looks like for me. And this, Julie, is when things got really good. Oh God, I, I can't wait, tell us. <laughs> I reconnected with video games. The one thing that I had shut out from my life in my 20s, finally allowed myself to, to do it. And I will tell you, like when I picked up, when I picked up my controller, it felt like an electric charge was going through my body. Like I like went through a portal and went back to when I was like 13 or 14 years old, playing it in my parents' house and having this like, just it's pure joy, pure, innocent, infinite joy of just the experience of playing a game. And what I, when I came back to, right? Cause it was, a, it was a very channeled experience. When I came back to, it occurred to me that video games for whatever reason, was never something that I used to escape life. Mm. You know, it was video to access joy, not to yes. escape life. Yes. And by accessing that joy, I also got so many other gifts, like a sense of creativity, a sense of expression, a sense of connection to others and to myself, uh, expressive curiosity, um, a little bit of competitive spirit, um, you know, the willingness to keep going, to keep trying, to not be focused on outcome but instead be focused on the experience and what I'm getting from it. All these things just came back to me, like a, just a flood and I was overwhelmed, I was crying. And I said, this is what I need to do everything I can in my power to keep in my life. Mm. If, there's, if, if I lose everything in my life, the two things I need to keep stay in my life are my, is my connection to my higher power and, and this joy. And so I thought, well, what can I do to keep it because I've been inconsistently with allowing myself to play video games and giving myself that permission. So I tapped into a dream that I had ever since I was in college, which was I wanted to be a professional gamer. Now, I knew that that wasn't necessarily the most realistic thing given where I was in my life at the time, having you know a, a daughter and, and being a husband and all that. And I know some gamers allow themselves to do that. I just didn't know how that was possible for me at the time. Tell me what a professional gamer is, because actually I'm, I'm not in the video game world, nor was my son. And I, I'm kind of happy about that, actually. But Yeah, um. <laughs> no, for sure. Um, well, the, the more formal term is professional esports athlete. So basically, you're someone who competes playing video games and you compete in tournaments. It's no different than playing like in a chess tournament or a surf competition or a basketball tournament, but you're doing it through video games. And so um, I decided that I was going to just train and compete in, uh, in one tournament, <laughs> just one. I just wanted to- You allowed yourself. Yeah, just have it, you know? And so I trained and it was a tournament. It was sponsored by Red Bull. It was in Orange County. I went down there, me and my friend. And Julie, I went in there and it, it felt like I was surrounded by my people. Like I was, mm. I was, I think I was you, in like Wonderland. Yeah. And I was a total, like, I didn't understand. Like, it, it was, I was such, I was so new to the industry and, and the culture, right. That like, I was, I was training on the wrong platform. Like I was playing with a different <laughs> controller and had to borrow my friend's controller to compete. Like I, I, I was so ill-prepared because I just didn't know anything about this. And I didn't know how big this world, this world was. And from when talking, you left it to when you rejoined it, it was a new, it was a kind of a different world. Oh yeah. It was unrecognizable to me, but I was just so happy that I got, so, that this was even accessible, that this was available to people. 
So I, I, you know, I, I would talk to people. I met so many people. I'd ask for tips. They would offer advice. They'd watch me play. I'd watch them play. I mean, I was having so much fun. And then I competed and, um, you know, I didn't win. <laughs> uh, I did do well. I came in 33rd out of uh, about 120 people. Um, and that was really cool. I really That's thought that was for awesome. A, for a brand new. Yeah, I thought so. You know, and I was really proud of myself that, you know, that the training and, and allowing myself to do that, you know, reaped some type of reward, but more importantly, just the unadulterated fun and joy that I had in that experience, being in a social environment and, and being, and being able to meet new people and just the comfort that I felt like I just, it was unlike anything I'd ever experienced in my adult life. Wow. And I remember, you know, with my buddy, we're, we're having dinner and I said, man, I enjoyed the entire process from making the decision to do this through the training. And, you know, I had so much fun in the training and I almost don't even care about the results. You know, I can't say that I don't care, but I don't care nearly as much as I cared about how much fun I had through the, the whole experience. Coming in 33rd was just a bonus. Like I was very surprised that I did as well as I did. And so for me, that was like a, a bonus benefit, but I never, all I wanted to do was compete in a tournament. I never set a goal to win a tournament or to place in the tournament. I just wanted to- compete. That was your, that was your allowing yourself, that was your portal back into your joy. Yes. And, and I because, thought to myself, Because just yeah. sitting up at home, wasn't going to be you couldn't like give yourself permission because you had to be a dad and and all this kind of you know, husband yeah. and and you can't just be off but but having a a a container mm -hmm. to do it in yeah yeah that that really serves me you know and i remember you know just having it kind of go through my mind and then i dropped the fork and i said wow, what if, what if I made my life a game that I was training for, you know? And what if like the game was designed for me primarily to have fun and winning became a byproduct of playing the game. And my buddy was like, that's, that's, he, he was shocked. He was like, where did that come from? I said, I have no idea, <laughs> you know, but it, but it felt so true. And I came home and I looked at my, my journal, I have it somewhere around here, but I, I, I write my journal daily and I looked back at like all the things that I learned from all the support that I received from my therapists, my coaches, my psychiatrists, my programs. And I said, there's some structure here that if I just blanket fun over it, it could be an amazing experience for people to have fun becoming their best self. Imagine being able to enjoy the process of, of, of becoming your best self. And I thought about video games some more. And I remember uh, anyone who's, who, under, who knows Super Mario, one of the first games out. That you know, I do know, and I love that music. Okay, so you'll, so you'll understand this analogy. You know, when you're playing that game and you're on your last life, you are in this stress-induced, <laughs> anxiety-riddled experience because all you're trying to do is survive, right? You're on your last life, the counter's going down, you're avoiding every pit, every Goomba, you just want it to end. And I realized that that's such a great analogy for life. So many people are yeah. living their lives with the timer running down, 
feeling like they're in such scarcity that all they need to do is survive. It could be survive life. It could be survive the day. It could even be survive this moment. And something magical happens when you get a green mushroom, which is an extra life, right? The one up. Your psychology changes because you now know you have this extra life. So now you're willing to take your time. You're willing to explore. You're willing to take risks, face enemies, knowing that if you were to make a mistake and Mario dies, you now not only have an extra chance, but you have feedback on how you can approach it better. And like I said before, games are designed not to win, but to have fun, Mm. right? The fun is what creates the replay value of life, right? You makes you want to do it again. And then the success becomes the fulfillment of that fun, but it's not something that we attach to. It just becomes a byproduct of the experience. And so I thought, wow, what if people had that same effect where they got the green mushroom? And I was like, oh, that's the one-up effect. And that became a really cool name for me to, to use as an idea. And so I you know, decided to run with this. And I said, wow, like this has become now the culmination of all of what I experienced. I had to go through that really dark period and knowing that not everyone makes it out the other side like I did. Yeah. I can be representative of not only that, but to show, share people that you can actually have fun playing a game that belongs to you. If you if you're having if you think you're winning the game of life but you're not having fun, chances are you were like me playing someone else's game. You know, it wasn't it wasn't my parents' intention to make me play their game, but that's what I ended up doing. And it wasn't until I decided that I want happiness to coexist with with whatever success I wanted to create in my life, that was my game. A game that I get to play and a game that I can win and have fun playing as well, you know? And so it became really clear that playfulness was so key, not just in my life, but in so many people's lives. And I thought that it would be a great way to use it as a form of mindfulness. Because when you're playing, it's, it's almost like you're present, but it's supercharged because you're, you're actively participating in a moment in life that brings you joy. And when you're experiencing joy, your body, I think your mind, your body, and your spirit awakens in a way that other forms of mindfulness may not be able to at that level. And I think if we're able to really participate and allow ourselves, right, the way that I was able to give myself just a little bit of permission, mm-hmm. just a little bit of permission to play, it could really transform you know, how we view our lives and what's possible. Um, and so it... For me, I, I feel like I finally found what I'm here on this planet to do. And, mm-hmm. and it feels amazing. Celebrate that. Now, <laughs> the, the thing is, is you're able to help people do this without hitting the rock bottom thing, right? Without having to, because a lot of people start to really value life and find what makes them happy when they have these mortality moments Mm -hmm. and they survive a mortality moment or, um, you know, like rock bottom moment type things too. And you sound like you have like developed this to help people find this without having to go through that. Exactly. You know, I, everyone has their bottoms, you know, like 
I, I mean, I've been arrested and I thought that was going to be like my lowest point and it wasn't. I, I had so much further, to, so much lower to go before I hit that bottom before things turned around. And I'm glad that I went through that process. But we don't have to go through that process. You know, we can make a conscious choice to allow our lives to be different, even if we don't know what it looks like just yet. Just with the willingness and the curiosity to explore what that looks like and the courage, right, to move forward is more than enough to start changing, changing your life. And, you know, today, to this day, you know, my life is filled with fun and it's also filled with challenge. You know, there are still moments in my life where I struggle with thoughts in my head that could lead to feeling a certain way and eventually leading to behavior that I may, that may not be representative of who I am, but I can, I've now become, I've, I've now learned to, I've learned to have fun with that process of shifting my mindset to have fun inside of, I, I even would say, I like to have fun in the dark, you know, because I, I've learned that my greatest gifts have come from my darkest moments, you know? Mm. And so I don't look at low points in my life as these awful experiences that I don't allow, I don't get to have fun, you know? Like if I, it doesn't have to, and I'm not saying that like, you know, you don't wish it upon yourself. Yeah, I'm not wishing it upon anyone. And I'm not saying that fun is guaranteed when you're, when you're um, in a dark place, you know, because I don't think that's necessarily realistic. But fun is an umbrella. And underneath fun creates so many other experiences such as curiosity, wonder, openness, willingness, you know? And, and I think these are, even those four things that I said are core components of how you can learn from what's in the dark, you know, find that light and be able to use that as a gift, not just to help you in the area of your life where you're feeling the darkness, but be able to apply it to other areas of your life as well and really see the transformation take place. And, and I, which I believe if you do it that way, it really can accelerate your transformation, you know? And so, right. yeah, I've been sober for, for three years, but I can say that, you know, within my first six months, I was unrecognizable to even my wife because I was taking those principles of having fun and applying it to all areas of my life and everything in my life just transformed because I was enjoying the experience of everything that I was doing, even if it was challenging. Oh my God, that is so incredibly powerful and so hopeful. Yeah. And we need to, we need to talk off, off camera about this idea that I kept thinking when you're talking is I want to connect you with this guy who is working with um, felons mm. in, in prisons and, and see how you can like dovetail your program onto the one that he's working on. It's called Hustle 2.0 and helps get um, gang members out of gangs who are in prison. Oh, I love it. And, and he did that and he's out of prison now. And now he's like going back into prisons and doing that. And That's so amazing. there's just so many applications for what you're doing. It, it's just mind boggling. And, and, but I'm, I guess I'm just like lost <laughs> for words of how hopeful this model is that you've created. And thank God you didn't end up dead in that those dark places where you were and yeah. you have your your family and now you have this this model and i'm just yeah it's just 
so exciting to to hear this. I'm so happy that. Thank you. That this Thank has, you. you know, we don't like to say that. And this is what I find in these interviews with people who've had the rug pulled out and things that you would never wish on anybody. And they come out of many of them, or at least the ones that I interview, come mm -hmm. out saying, you know, I'm actually glad that happened. I wouldn't change anything for the world. Yeah. Isn't that weird? <laughs> it, it, it's strange. You know, I, I, I've come to a level of unconditional acceptance and love of myself, you know, and that includes who I was back then. You know, right. I had to understand that I've always been a good person. And for a long period of time, I struggled with making good decisions. And a lot of that just had to do with where I was in my life. You know, I didn't Who, have the person and their life. behavior are two separate things. Yep. I mean, they're, they're contained in the person and they and they you do have to be responsible, but they are because your, your behavior isn't who you are. Yeah, you know, and I've learned that your your behavior is a symptom of of something deeper, yeah. you know. And so when you take the time to go there, yeah. if you're willing, yeah. there there's opportunities and for and if great... you have the right help. Yes, exactly. Which I'm glad you... that you pointed that out because yeah, a lot of people, you know, and, and self help is great, and at some point it's really important to talk to professionals. And not every professional is going to be qualified to help you, mm -hmm. even if they have the degrees after their name. You have to find the right fit, right? Yeah, yeah, and and I was very fortunate that you know my two therapists. They were a fit for me. So I oftentimes hear that people have to go through multiple therapists right, before right. they find their fit. That's the same way you go through life with anyone. I'm, right. I'm talking your friends. <laughs> I'm talking, you know, um, your support group, whether you have like, you know, therapists or a coach or a guide or a mentor, um, even family sometimes, you know, like sometimes mm -hmm. you, you, there might be difficult decisions to make in terms of how much you expose yourself to family members or friends or people if they carry a level of toxicity that you just don't want in your life, you know, in that moment. Exactly. But you're always going to look and do inventory on the people in your life because if you are in a place where you know you can get better, then you want to surround yourself with people who can help you get there and who want to see you there, right? Like exactly. that's also very important too because yep. if people don't want to see you there, then they will treat you like just another crab and they will pull you back. <laughs> they will pull you back into the bucket and you won't even think that's what's going on. I had that situation too when I was trying to get sober and a lot of my friends that I was hanging out with oh, the time yeah. didn't want me to be sober because that meant I would, they would have not have me to hang out with. And yeah, I just had to make a decision where I was like, I'm not going to answer any text messages after 10 PM. And it felt like overnight, it might've just been over a few days, but I never heard from those people again, you know, and it hurt me, but it also it freed made me, you. Yeah. It, yeah. It made me realize that they weren't meant to be in my life to begin with. And it just created that closure that maybe I did not expect, but maybe I intuitively knew mm -hmm. by making that decision, you know? And so um, nothing for, in my life, I feel ever happens as a coincidence. It's, it's meant to, to happen, which is why I'm so grateful. And um, while I don't wish anyone to go through what I uh, have gone through, I would always say that if you've heard something that resonates with you and you're like, okay, this guy knows how to get through you know, adversity, like look for people like me. If it's not me, look for people like me that you can go to 
and ask and, and share with, because those are the people that you're going to learn from the most, whether you pay them or not. Um, you know, those are the type of people that you want in your life because they have the tools and the character, the character that you're trying to emulate and grow within yourself. And it takes surrounding yourself with those people uh, to build that within yourself. We become who we surround ourselves with. Yeah, it's a real thing. It's a real, it and it doesn't require totally a lot of people either to do that. You right. know, one or two high quality, deep connected relationships can help, help, help change your life. It really can. And it requires letting go of certain people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, we could go on and on, but the audience is probably going to say this is, this is going on too long. So yeah. um, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. How can people find you? Well, online? yes, you can. First thing I would say is if you want to learn more about the one-off effect and the methodology, I actually have a book that is available for pre-order. Right now it's being edited and will be published by Morgan James later this year oh called God. The One-Up Effect. And so you can pick up your pre-order copy at oneupeffect.com. Um, if you're interested- Number one. Yeah, number one. UP. Effect. Yeah, UP, effect, E, F-F-E-S-E-C-T.com. Okay. Um, if you want to have a conversation with me directly and you want to kind of figure out what fun can look like for you and what the structure can look like, you can actually go to thomasedwardsjr.com slash book, and you can uh, find a time. And then I'm on social media. If you just kind of want to see more of, about you know, what I'm like and, and more conversations like this, What's I'm on most Instagram? social media. Yeah, as Thomas H. Edwards Jr. So Thomas H. Edwards Jr. Cool. All right. Well, this has been Bold Becoming, and I'm Julie Brown. Hey there. The value that you got from this today Take it into your heart. Add value to it in your own life by putting it into practice and growing it to be part of your life, your daily habits, the takeaways that you got from this. Words and thoughts only take us so far. It's implementing on those words and thoughts that will change your life. Ideas are just ideas. Taking action on ideas is where growth happens and freedom emerges from growth. Freedom from our past invisible binding. We're here to grow and release ourselves from our past constraints. With awareness, intention, and through taking action on new choices, we evolve. In this process, we exalt our pain and suffering into wisdom that empowers us. We all have the ability to transform and become that person we yearn to be. If today's episode added value to your life, please share it with others. And make sure to subscribe to Bold Becoming Identity Retooled. And if you might, take a minute right now and leave a review so that others can find out about this podcast. If you'd like to contact me for one-on-one -on -one coaching or to get on the wait list for my Tough Stories workshop, send me an email and we'll be in touch. Be sure to check out our free Facebook group of Bold Becomers. The link's in the show notes.